I'm not sure, but I may have accidentally just taken a sleeping pill. Maybe. I'm not sure, but I may have just accidentally eaten a whale. I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's possible. What? So is this the part of the show where you go over the rules of you know, like etiquette and good behavior with guests? No, this is the part of the show where we get it all out of our system so that we can behave like adults. Wait, it's taking you 145 episodes to behave like adults? Wait a minute. <laughs> it's going to take a lot more than that. <coughs> a lot more. <laughs> Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. This podcast is sponsored by New Relic. To track and optimize your application performance, go to rubyrogues.com slash newrelic. This episode is sponsored by Code Climate. Code Climate automated code reviews ensure that your projects stay on track. Fix and find quality and security issues in your Ruby code sooner. Try it free at rubyrogues.com slash codeclimate. Does your application need to send emails? Did you know that 20% of all email doesn't even get delivered to the inbox? SendGrid can help you get your message delivered every time. Go to rubyrogues.com slash SendGrid, sign up for free, and tell them thanks. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to episode 146 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. Chuck is out today, so I'll be your host, uh, and with me today is Josh Susser. Hello from San Francisco. Avdi Graham. Hello from Pennsylvania. Ruby Rogues alum Aaron Patterson. Hello from the internet. <laughs> and uh, with us today is special guest Pat Shaughnessy. Hi, it's Pat. Thanks so much for having me. Welcome to the show, Pat. Yeah. Since this is your first time on, you want to go ahead and introduce yourself? Uh, sure, yeah. I'm, I'm Pat Shaughnessy. I'm a Ruby developer. Um, I worked for a long time at McKinsey, which is a management consulting firm. And now I'm doing some freelancing, uh, and I live outside of Boston in Massachusetts. And we asked Pat on the show today to talk about typos. No, 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 not typos. Um, <laughs> I don't know anything about typos. <laughs> we asked Pat on to talk about his book, Ruby Under the Microscope, which we've all been reading. It's very good. Thanks a lot. I Really appreciate, uh, again, having me on. Is Thanks a lot. And um, also, thanks for reading the book. It's a lot to take, so I'm sure it wasn't easy. I had a lot of fun with the book. So, Pat, I, I used to do virtual machine development. I did small talk and Java stuff. And, yeah, so this was, this was great. This was, like, a lot of information that I've sort of suspected was what was going on in Ruby and some of the stuff I'd learned in various places. But this just, like, this put it all together in one place and fleshed out all the details, and a lot of it felt like familiar territory, but a lot of it was also, ooh, wow, I love the explanations. I thought it was, you know, as a VM implementer, I thought this was a really solid book. Yeah, this was the uh, most fun I've had I've had reading a tech book in a long time. Thanks. Thanks, Abdi. Thank you. So, yeah, we all seem to be in agreement, but let's actually start with, what is this book? Why It's very different, right, from a lot of the tech books we read. Why don't, Pat, you give us the 10,000-foot view? Well, I have like, to say, what the heck is this? Yeah, so, I mean, there's a lot of great books out there on programming, especially with Ruby. There's a lot of fantastic Ruby books. And, you know, most books are, you know, programming 101. Like, how do I learn this language? You know, how do I learn Ruby? And that makes a lot of sense. If you're a developer and you want to learn a new language, that's usually why you buy a, pro a programming book, right? So I wanted to do something different. And I've always been interested in Ruby internals and how things work on the inside and, you know, I'll talk a lot more about that later if we have time. But 
I just figured it would be really fun to write sort of more advanced book about how Ruby actually works. And I'd written a few blog articles about that stuff back in 2012, and they seemed to be pretty popular. So I figured, hmm, there's some appetite for this. And I just think it's an amazing story, you know. So I, I think whether it's a, a blog post or a conference presentation or a, or a book, I think it's all about storytelling, right? You want to entertain people. And I think what's going on inside of Ruby for me is just this really interesting story that I wanted to tell. And, you know, the Ruby core team, and, and, and I'm glad you're with us today, Aaron. Thanks for coming. You guys have done a lot of amazing work. There's a lot of really amazing things going on inside of the language that we all know and love. And I just wanted to share that with the world, as well as find out for myself. You know, I didn't know any of this stuff before I tried to write the book. So it was, it was great for me to learn it, too. I have to mention, I was the technical reviewer for this book. So if there's any typos, it's my fault. <laughs> yeah, I'm blaming you, Aaron. As, as usual. So, so Pat, um, I got to say, the thing that I loved most about this book wasn't just that you presented all the information, but that the entire book was a guide to how to experiment to discover all of yeah, this information for good. yourself. That's Is good. it? How, yeah, how to learn all of this stuff yourself. So it was like reading the book every time I got to a section that said, oh, here's this question that we want to answer. And then it was, well, here's how we'll create an experiment and we can run some Ruby code to right. learn something about what's going on inside the VM. Right. And then we can go look at some code or something inside the VM to confirm what we were thinking. Cool. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. And I think that's one of the or maybe the best thing about open source software is you can do that. It's all out there, you know, and. You know, I think back, I've been doing development for like 20 years. I think back to the 90s when I was doing, you know, Microsoft sort of Windows GUI apps. And that there was just like this wall, you couldn't get around it. And, you know, what's going on inside of Windows and what's going on inside of Visual C++? Who knows? You know, they know in Microsoft, but no one else knows. I think that's one of the great things about Ruby or any open source framework is that you can find out. You can just go look at the code yourself. And uh, whether it's Linux, Ruby or Rails or anything, you can just go read the code and figure it out. And yeah, that's really what this is all about, is figuring out how Ruby works. And then I wanted to also, the other big goal was explain it in a way to people that wasn't intimidating, that made sense, that, uh, you know, made sense to Ruby developers and not just to C developers. You know, if you're not sure if you want to read the book or if you're, if you're afraid it's a little too advanced or technical, I really try to explain things so that if you're a Ruby developer, it'll make sense you don't need to know sort of all the bits and bytes and, you know, assembly language and C programming, all the real technical stuff at a detailed level. So I hope that came across. I hope most Ruby developers were able to follow along. It definitely did. I got to agree with Josh. I got sucked into the experiments. At one point, you're showing uh, the difference between four and each, and you just did it to show that under the hood, four is just a syntactic trick, and it's actually calling each. But what's actually always bugged me about four and each in Ruby is the way it leaks a variable in the outer scope when you switch to four. And so I took that example you started and played around with it uh, so that I could see the instructions in Yarv. And, and, like, Ruby actually takes this extra step to assign that variable up to that outer scope. And I'm like, oh, why do you do that? You know, the because that's the variable leak that I always can't stand about the for loop. So it was cool to get sucked into that and be able to play with the examples and see what was happening. Does anyone even use for loops now? Well, I, I used to see them all the time in Rails code. They used to be a fashion, and 
Rails code for some reason. Nowadays, I don't think I've seen <laughs> well, Okay, it, it, in Rails, back in the 1.0 days, it was like, use each in the model or in the controller and four in the view. <laughs> yeah. Um, was that you remember that? <laughs> yeah. And why was this a thing exactly? I, I have seen it suggested that four was somehow looked better in views or that maybe the people that are making the views would be more familiar with a four concept. But I've, I've never found that terribly convincing. I think each works just as well in yeah, a view. I, and, I and and logicless views work even better. What? <laughs> You're not making any sense. You're being illogical. <laughs> That's a whole other episode. <laughs> I have a question about the book. All right, you get one question, Aaron. How were you able to fit Ruby under a microscope? It's a great <laughs> question. It's a really good one. Uh, well, you know, Aaron, Ruby's come in all shapes and sizes. I just, I got a smaller one that fit. I thought I got a pre-release version of M Ruby because yeah, it can that's fit what on really small. Yeah, that's Ruby because it's smaller. <laughs> okay, now we're going to get even more feedback about how lame our humor is. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, it's just, it's just me. That's why you bring me on as a guest to, like, make the humor even worse. It's okay. <laughs> it's awesome. I knew this was a bad idea. Um, no, and th- again, thanks for coming, Aaron. I just wanted to, um, I wanted you to answer all the tough questions today. I wanted you to be humorous, but really I just wanted to thank you for, you know, all the help that you gave me on the book and for fixing all my mistakes. And not only that, you gave me just a lot of great suggestions for maybe what was missing or what else, you know, just what else I could put in. So I, I really, really appreciate it. And, you know, I think oh, no, no problem at all. I, I'm glad I was able to review the book. I actually enjoyed reading it a lot. The reason I liked it is because it's very, like, it discusses Ruby internals, but it does it in a really approachable way. I liked it a lot because I don't think we have a lot of advanced books. There aren't very many, and this is an advanced book, but you don't have to be a C programmer. But if you are a C programmer, you can actually dive into the source and be like, oh, okay, I, I can handle that. So I, I really enjoyed reading it. Thanks. And I, and I think that's important because I think people should know, you know, like the, one of the reasons I wrote this book is I think Ruby developers should know how their language works. You know, the way I look at it is Ruby is like the tool that we use to solve problems. And for me, the best way to, to know how to use a tool is to sort of know what the tool is doing. How does a tool itself work? What's going on inside the tool? You know, and the same thing could be said for Rails or for, you know, for any software framework, Angular or whatever. If you really want to be good at using Active Record, if you really want to know what to do and what not to do with Active Record, you sort of have to at some point dive in and learn the code inside of Rails. You know, how does Active Record actually work? What is it really doing? And I think that's the same for Ruby itself. And the problem is, of course, it's written in a different language. It's really hard to figure out. So that's what I was trying to do is just give people um, that information that maybe they couldn't get anywhere else. The main problem with that analogy, though, is that nobody actually knows how Active Record works. Ha, ha, right. ha. You do, Aaron. That's nope. all we need. <laughs> nope. <laughs> Pat, you said something in the introduction that goes along with what you were just saying there that I really liked. It said that you could read this book to learn how Ruby's creators intend for you to use it. And that was just a thought I hadn't had before, that when they're creating and designing the language, they have in mind, we hope, you know, intentional usage, you know, how would this be used? And by looking into some of this, we run into that. We see, you know, how are they intending for us to use the language? It's an interesting idea. Yeah, yeah. 
I, I think that came to me when I was, because I, I wrote the introduction sort of at the end, which is kind of a funny thing, but I was imagining, I don't know, that really hit me when I was writing the chapter about blocks and closures and how the stack works and how it, it finds variables, you know, where you reference a, a function or a block and all that stuff, that sort of stuff, like chapter eight um, in the book. When I was figuring that out and writing that, it sort of struck me. There's a lot going on here. And I think Matt's and the core team, when they, you know, when he invented the language, he wanted us to be doing that sort of thing. You know, he wanted us to be using blocks in a certain way and using lambdas and procs and other things in a certain way. Um, and, you know, sort of like the way that they work in uh, Lisp. And that's, that's what led me to write that sentence. And that's what I had in mind. But then other things as well. It applies to, you know, modules and objects and classes, all that stuff. They were designed in a certain way to work a certain way. And, you know, so understanding how they work helps us, I think, understand what we should be doing with them. On that note, something else I found that that's helpful for understanding how it was intended to be used is I've been following the the Ruby core mailing list for a while now. And it's just really fascinating to see, you know, somebody will will pop up with an idea for an addition to Ruby. And it's like, oh, yeah, that, that seems like a really neat idea. And then you'll see the conversation that ensues and somebody will bring up some unforeseen consequences of that idea. And suddenly it's like, oh, wow, that would have been a terrible idea. So, yeah, it's just another perspective on, you know, the thought that goes into this. So, Pat, I did find a few things that I, I thought were missing from the book. Okay. So I'm looking forward to the sequel, Ruby Under an Atomic Force Microscope. So in particular, like there was no discussion at all about the efficiency of double-quoted strings versus single-quoted strings. Good <laughs> 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 yeah. No, I think, and I think you're right. I think there's a lot missing. And I don't intend this to be an exhaustive explanation of every single thing that goes on inside of Ruby. Um, in fact, I think to be serious, I think the biggest thing that's missing, and I just, um, you know, literally ran out of steam, ran out of energy, was uh, a discussion of threading and multi-threading and how that works and how it doesn't work in Ruby. In Especially with like how fibers now play into all of that, right? Yeah, and you know, and you know, part of it was there's other great books on that. I, you know, I know Jesse Stormer wrote a book on threading stuff, and I just, you know, I didn't know anything about it, and I just didn't have time and the energy to to keep going and keep writing, and you know, so that's one big thing that's missing, and there's other, you know, I think less less important stuff missing. So, but what I tried to cover was what I think or what I thought was the really the fundamental core ideas of the language starting with you know so parsing like how does ruby understand your code i think that's really interesting and how does it work what's really going on there you know going into the vm and how it works and then uh, the object model you know closures and blocks all that stuff so i just picked the things that were most interesting to me and also in my opinion that were the most important sort of the core identity of ruby as a language well, i think I think the things you covered are mainly things that'll, I mean, you could talk about threading, but I think 80% of the time you're writing stuff that doesn't have to do with threading. Like, you don't particularly care. You know, you're writing stuff in your controllers or, I, you know, whatever, regular Ruby code. And I think that's what this book covers is like stuff you need to keep in mind on your daily programming tasks. Okay. So it's very I, good. I like where you're going there, but I, I've got a one word response. Yes. Refinements. <laughs> so, so I included those. Was that a mistake? Do you think I should have left that out? I don't know. So I, that's a good point. Maybe we can talk about this a little. Um, 
Now, having looked under the hood at how refinements work, and, and I read the book too, which was good for me because I've not been a fan of refinements, so I was anxious to see how it influenced my opinion on them at all. How do you feel about having refinements in Ruby? How do I feel about having them in there? Yes. I think it's it sounds like an interesting, cool feature. Um, I don't have a strong opinion about whether it's a good idea or not. I think if it, if it were used responsibly, and maybe that's the key, key thing here is most people aren't responsible enough, but if it's used responsibly, why not? It could be really effective and helpful. But like most things in Ruby, if you misuse it or do it, you know, use it too much or do the wrong things with it, it could clearly be very confusing. Right. So I guess, I guess the big question is, do you have any thoughts on what might constitute a responsible use? Yeah, to, um, I, I, as it's, as it's intended. I think if you wanted to change the behavior of something, in a specific place and not, you know, globally across your app, then I think that could be helpful. The thing I think that's weird about that is, like, I, I see where it's going. Like, you want to do, you, maybe you want a monkey patch string, but you only want to do it in this class. Whenever I see use cases like that, I'm like, well, why don't you just, like, make a private method in the class right. and, like, just call that method and pass a string in? Like, I don't. Then the other half of me is like, well, I'm just not a huge fan of monkey patching anyway, so am I just biased? You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. So uh, reading about the implementation of it, you know, you get to kind of see that it's this special case in Ruby, right? I mean, there has to be a whole separate field in the structure to manage these refinements, you know? And, yeah, there's a lot of noise in the code, in the C code, a lot of noise about implementing that right right and so i i have to say that i wasn't really a super big fan going in and reading about the implementation did not make me a bigger fan <laughs> you know like uh, it didn't seem like it was a you know super clean thing that just made sense in the existing system it was more like eh, to make this work we're gonna have to you know wrap a bunch of things around here and and I, I didn't say that swayed me at all. I, I can definitely understand the point of wanting to be able to, you know, safely change a few things in this context. What extremely worries me about refinements, and, and I think we have yet to see, you know, a heavy usage of it in the Ruby world. So I, I'm holding out judgment to see if it can be done right. But my concern is that now that, you know, it applies on basically the module level, What's going to happen is there's some module, you know, influenced by some library, and then because you, you know, put something in that space uh, somehow in your usage of it, that then you have these inherited behaviors, and there's not a super easy way that I'm aware of for you to see that at, like, the usage level. Like, if you start trying to figure out what method's being called, and you just start calling ancestors or something like that, that's not going to help you. Yeah, well, I think there's there's two answers to that. First, the refinements are lexically scoped. They're supposed to be lexically scoped, so it shouldn't affect you outside of a particular file. Okay, hang on, I gotta stop you there. That was true in Ruby 2. I do not believe that's true in Ruby 2.1, is it? Really? Is that? I thought their scope was expanded in Ruby 2.1. Am I wrong? I'm not sure. I don't know. Okay, I'm not we're, sure. we're gonna try to get a definitive ruling right. on that, but keep uh, going. Th that's uh, what I heard, too. And then the other the other thing is if you use the method method, you can look up what you're going to call and the source location. Ah, that's a good point. I did not think of that. So what you're saying is get a reference to the method, then call source location. Yeah, and then you know exactly where you're calling. That's a good point. Yep. That seems like a lot of work <laughs> to, 
<laughs> like I like I can't I can't imagine writing code like normal kind of code to do stuff with that amount of metaprogramming in it just to let you understand what's going on. Honestly, I couldn't survive in the Rails code base working on the Rails code base without the method method. I have no idea what's going on right now. I have oh, to use uh, that. So you mean it you mean as like a debugging tool? Yeah, as, yeah. Okay. Okay. Yep. So okay, yep. that's okay, that's does, a different thing. Does the Rails team do you guys use refinements? No. No. And would you use them in the future? That's a good question. I don't know exactly. So the problem is, like, we can't offer... So first off, there's the first most fundamental issue, which is that we go back, we support 1.9. So right, right. we can't use them for that from that perspective. But even when we drop 1.9, we can't make applications backwards compatible. So, for example, since refinements were lexically scoped in 2.0, we don't know about 2.1, since they're lexically scoped in 2.0, there's no way that we could turn all of our monkey patches into refinements and then offer them to you in the same place. Because, like, let's say, for example, you're using, I'm trying to think of an active support method, uh, Camelize or something like that. If you're using that inside one of your models, since you didn't explicitly require the refinement, then it's not going to work, right? We have to continue to monkey patch in order to be backwards compatible with existing applications. So... Even if we could use refinements, it's not going to happen for a long time. A long time, right? Yeah. So I, I just did a little Googling to double check. I've put the link in the show notes, but according to these notes I found, here's what it says about the changes in 2.1. It says that uh, in Ruby 2.1, refinements are no longer experimental and can also be applied within a module without affecting the top-level scope of a file. Right, I think that sounds right, yeah. In 2.0, I, th- I think the compromise was you could only apply or use the refinements in the top-level scope. So and that's the lexically scoped Aaron was talking about, yeah. And now you're able to, yeah, in a, in other inside of other modules or classes, you can turn them on and use them. Yeah, but, so uh, it looks like that restriction has been lifted. I have not personally played with it or tried it, but that's... But it's still, isn't it still lexical, I mean, in the sense of it's it's active from, like, where the module opens to the, where the module yeah. end yeah. is? Yeah, yeah, so it's, it's all still, it's all lexically scoped. Yeah, I guess it's, you're right, it's just, yeah. it, you have in 2.0, they limited the impact of the feature by saying you could only apply refinements at the top level. Now right. you can put right. the, you know... You're but right. it's, it's so, lexical in the sense that, that, you know, the module keyword introduces a lexical scope. Yes, exactly. Room. So you're and you're right, and and it's not like if I reopen that module somewhere else, I won't get those refinements unless right. I also right. include the refinement. And if you include the module somewhere else, you're not going to get the refinements. Okay, which is a fair point. So most of my fears seem unfounded. That's good. Yeah, it's pretty it's pretty um, isolated. Okay, and that was our sidetrack on refinements. Although to put it back on point, I will point this out. One of the dangers of this highly technical book, obviously, is that parts of it will get out of date very fast. <laughs> and that, that's happened in a couple of areas. I noticed two. Uh, one was the refinements. It didn't really talk about the differences between Ruby 2.0 and 2.1. Another is uh, when you talk about method caches. All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those also took a pretty big change in Ruby 2.1. It was ironic. As soon as I finished the book, I was literally being printed somewhere. I met James Golick at a conference, and he started telling me all about the amazing stuff that he's done with, uh, I think he and some others, Charlie Somerville, on on method caching. And 
speeding that up and now it's what's scoped by by class or subclass you know it's, it's a much more efficient way of doing it and that just wasn't in ruby when i was writing that part of the book so i, I had to tell him dude i'm sorry i didn't cover that but so the i i just touch on the basic uh way method caching works works but i didn't get into the really uh important optimizations that were made you know just recently so i think um it, correct me if i'm wrong so the way it used to work is if you ever added a new method or created a new class or module, the method cache was invalidated. And, you know, there were like 15 different things you could do to invalidate yeah. the method right. cache. Right. Yeah, so it would, now it would it's invalidate globally. Yeah. yeah, now it's only invalidated for the class that you're changing. Exactly. So, yeah, it's basically hierarchically scoped now. So, you know, if, if you do it, you know, only that branch of the tree and down needs to rebuild their method cache. So. Right, and they made some important changes to like the R class structure to make that possible. I think, um, but I just didn't 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 see that and didn't know about that when I was when I was covering that part of it. I really like that change because that global invalidation of the method cache was always a big penalty for using Ruby dynamically. Yes, Ruby is right. a very dynamic language, and it it cries out to be used dynamically. You know, and and so. I really like the change that uh, James made because it rewards us, you know, for our ability to use it dynamically, you know, or at least doesn't penalize us as much, you know. And, and I, I like the philosophy behind the change as well. I mean, I was asking Matt's about this when I got a chance to meet him, you know, talking about the argument, you know, that I've participated in and seen where it's like, on the one side, it's, you know, we should use all these abilities of Ruby to the max and our use should put pressure on implementers to to optimize it and the other side saying we should not use you know we should constrain what features we use because some of them just aren't fast and and i i was asking about that specifically with regard to method cache things that blow up the method cache like extend and basically he said you should use the features that ruby gives you they're there to be used and the implementers are there to make them fast and totally And and some of these features are like creating methods i mean that's hard not to use right yeah, and then he brought up exactly this change that we're talking about, where you know at that point it wasn't released yet, but it was already in core in in the trunk that the method caches had been had been broken up. Yeah, so this is great work, and James Gallic has some blog posts on that stuff or conference presentations, so and we can link to those later. Also, um, I guess this is the same strategy that JRuby uses, or you actually used for a while. Now MRI uses the same expiry strategy that JRuby uses. Yeah, James was telling me that I think Charlie Nutter helped him out a lot on just, yeah, how to do this, what's the right design. And I think some of that actually came out of the refinements discussion, because one of the issues with refinements was how expensive it was. And a lot of the examination of the refinements feature led them to some understanding that let them optimize. So, anyway. (laughs) Hey, so more about the book. (laughs) There's some really cool stuff in the book that talks about like the format of the R object structure and the, you know, the polymorphic nature of it and how it gets used in different ways. And I guess in the C side of things, you would call it a union. Right, right. Yeah. And it was great because at the beginning of the book, it looked pretty straightforward. And as you went through the book and kept talking about new kinds of objects, you you talk about strings and talk about blocks and Mm -hmm. all that. We got to see how some of the quirks of Ruby 
get explained by that. And th so there's things like why short strings are so much more efficient to use. And then there's that, like, what, like 27 characters or something limit? What was it, right, 27? Yeah. That yeah. was my most infamous blog post. I, I wrote yeah. that as a joke. Not as a joke, but I wrote the title. It was called uh, Never Create Strings Longer Than 23 Characters. Oh, 23, yeah. yeah. And I thought it, I thought it would be obviously a you know, tongue-in-cheek sort of a sarcastic title. And I think a lot of people took that um, seriously. You know? <laughs> and, you know, they started rewriting their apps or something. I don't know. But I've, that's, pro uh, I've programmed that way ever since. <laughs> exactly. So, so, so there was that, but there was also the thing about um, the compact hashes where right. if like there's. Yeah, that was cool. Yeah, yeah. It's like if there's, if there's few enough entries in the hash, then it just makes a little array, <laughs> stores all the values and, and keys right there, and you don't need to have all of the other objects allocated. That was really interesting. Yeah. That, yeah, so the hash chapter in general is on my list as one of the parts I thought was super cool in the whole book. Yeah, so I mean, a lot of things here. One, one point I want to make is, again, the Ruby core team has done a lot of work, a lot, a lot of work over many years to make Ruby faster and, and better. And these are just some examples of the lengths that they go to. I mean, they're making the, the Ruby C code is very complex and hard to understand, often because of these kinds of optimizations. And they do that to speed things up and to make our apps faster. So, I, you know, kudos to them and thanks to all the hard work from Matt and Koichi and Aaron and all those guys because, you know, they're really helping us out. The other point I want to make is, uh, you know, back to hashes, you just mentioned that, James. I think another thing I want people to get out of this book is some touch on or some taste of computer science, uh, you know, of the computer science behind Ruby and behind um, the way Ruby works. And we're standing on the shoulders of giants. You know, everything that um, Ruby does was actually is based on work and research that was done, you know, not in the 1990s, but 1950s and 60s and 70s and 80s. So, um, you know, and hash tables are just one example of, those, of that. Um, and, you know, the way I think of it is I think most Ruby developers, maybe more so than other other language communities, but a lot of Ruby developers, you know, aren't computer science majors, didn't go to college to study computer science. You know, they might have majored in English or they were, you know, musicians or they were, you know, maybe like I didn't major in computer science either, but I got into this um, for, from some other path. Um, so you may never have learned the theory behind hash tables or garbage collection or, you know, how parsers and compilers work. Uh, and so I, I think, you know, one reason to study how Ruby works and one reason to read this book is just to get a taste of the, the computer science theory behind everything that we're doing. And I think it's important. It's important not that you know every single detail and every single C, you know, pointer and structure inside of Ruby, but you should know what a hash table is and how it works and the basic idea behind it. And, you know, you should know what garbage collection is and what it means at least at a conceptual level. And that's, I think that's really my biggest, aside from storytelling and entertainment, my biggest goal of the book is really to, at a high level, at a conceptual level, just to show people with a lot of diagrams and a lot of words how the computer science inside of Ruby really works. How much of that computer science stuff did you know before uh, going into this and how much did you learn along the way? Oh, I think I learned almost all of it along the way. I mean, I... You know, I was thinking about that recently. Like, I might have had a vague idea of what a hash table was. You mm -hmm. put it in, you get it out with a key, and somehow there's something called a hash function. But I didn't really know. And so I think that's what was super exciting for me about writing this book and, and about doing the research behind it, was finding out. 
And again, right. it's open source software. Ruby is it's all out there. You can just go read it and find out for yourself. So it's it's it was super exciting to really walk through you know, like when I save a key and a value in a hash, what actually happens? You know, when I create an object or I set an instance variable, what is really what is Ruby really doing? Um, and it's it was super fun to see just the nuts and bolts of how what was going on inside, but also to get a sense of um, the theory underlying or underpinning that. Um, it was really interesting. So the hash table sticks out, or the hash chapter sticks out as such a cool example because it's like you say, you talk about this algorithm, you talk about how it works, how items get sorted into buckets, and why that hash function is so important. And then you're like, wow, so we've learned all this. Let's see if we can break the hash, you know, and just return right. a terrible hash value and what happens to performance. And you play with it and do the experiment, and it's like, Look, Ruby falls off a cliff. <laughs> right, right. That was a fun one. Yeah, I remember that. It was one of the first experiments I did. And, and again, it, it points out how important, like, this tiny little detail in Ruby, like this, there's actually this wacky bit of C code that um, Matt's and the team got from, I think it was University of Berkeley or someplace, that does the hash function. And uh, no, that's the hash, sorry, the hash table code generally. There's actually a newer algorithm they're using for the hash function called the murmur hash or something. You know, so one little tiny detail like that has just an enormous impact on how hashes work. And yeah. hashes are underlying, you know, that we use hashes every day in all of our code. So, yeah. so, so Pat, I, speaking of hashes, so there was actually part of the book that I found horrifying. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, not, not because of the book, but because of what it was explaining. Uh-huh. And that was the section where you're talking about keyword arguments, section okay. 4.2, or experiment 4.2, keyword arguments. Uh-huh. And you showed how you could monkey patch the hash class and essentially right. break the entire language. <laughs> but how is that new? So what's new? You can monkey patch <laughs> plus. Well, okay. So, you know, from a VM implementer perspective, I'm, I'm used to there being like a kernel VM and what goes on inside that kernel is, you know, Bye. can only be affected by changes within that kernel. And then you build the rest of the language on top of that. And, you know, that's much the way that Rubinius is built and, and JRuby and all. But, but MRI, apparently you can go in and you can change methods in the hash class in Ruby. Right. And that changes the functionality of the inner workings of the VM. Because Ruby is using hashes internally. I too was surprised by that when you showed uh, how by just by constructing these keywords arguments, it was making this hidden hash and then it was asking it if it had these keys or whatever. It was like, wow, that is kind of crazy, you know, but neat too. Well, yes. you can do you can do tons of stuff to break the language though. It's just that that's not like that particular behavior. I don't think it's, it's not required. Like for example, JRuby doesn't have to implement keyword arguments that right. way. Yeah. I'm not encouraging people to break the language. <laughs> <laughs> it's not what I want. Oh, it's too late that's now. That's my job. Except as an experiment. Yeah, it's but, too late now. That's, it's, it's in a quote unquote experiment. Um, but yeah, I recommend no, I, everyone override the, the dot hash function on object. And see what happens. <laughs> so yeah, so the, met- the message is one. Re- read Ruby under a microscope to learn what you should not do in your application. <laughs> <laughs> Um, uh, you talked about, you know, just digging in and actually watching Ruby do its thing and seeing what it actually does under the covers. One of the things that I found most interesting about this book was seeing you use some tools that maybe not everyone is familiar with to dig into Ruby internals. And I'm not just talking about reading the C code, but I mean, more about the tools that you used to 
look at Ruby dynamically. And I'm, I'm curious if you can talk a little bit about, like, if somebody wants to, to get an interesting look at what's going on under the covers and, and like, learn what Ruby can tell you about itself dynamically, what are some of the, the tools they should look at? That's an interesting question. I'm actually very old-fashioned. I, I only primarily did two things. One was I used GDB, which is a C debugger, to, right, right. you know, set breakpoints and to step through the code. And in particular, to look at the, the C stack trace, just to get a sense of, you know, where I was in time and what was happening in what order. So, yeah, so people, if they want to do that sort of thing, they should, you know, they should get the C code on their machine. They should set up, a, you know, the C compiler, Clang or GCC and learn how to use GDB a little bit at least. But to be honest, the most mileage I got was by, uh, and the most useful technique I had was very simple and very old school, which was just putting print statements, printf statements in the C code. And that was a way of, it was even more than GDB, it was a way of just giving me a sense of what happened in what order in time. And that's one of the most confusing things to figure out is, you know, not only is there a lot of code that's hard to understand, but it's very hard to figure out what happens first and second and third and, you know, what right. calls what. So I know there's better, you know, maybe there's more sophisticated tools out there. Um, you know, I know there's D-Trace and Aaron, maybe you can, you can mention that if you want. I knew you did some stuff with that last year. But, but for me, printf was, you know, it was just a great, it was a very sort of simple way, just adding a print statement here, recompiling Ruby, and running uh, some test Ruby code and seeing, you know, what was outputted. But you also did some interesting things with dumping out disassembled YARV bytecode and also uh, some right. stuff with object space as well. I agree, yeah. Yes, yes, you're right. I'm sorry. So, yes, there, the, the thing in the beginning in chapters one and two when I talk about um, Ripper, which helps us understand tokenization and parsing. That was really helpful. Yeah, the disassembly, that was a huge thing. So I think it's chapter three. I get into that chapters two and three. And yeah, that was a hugely helpful thing because you, um, you know, you really do see that language that Ruby is compiled into. And mm-hmm. for people who aren't, who didn't know that, it's, it, and that was one of the things that really shocked me. I, I had no idea that Ruby had a compiler. That, you know, I always thought Ruby is an interpretive language. What do you mean there's a compiler? Um, this isn't Java. What compiler? And, uh, but yeah, there's a compiler running in there. It produces bytecode just sort of like Java does. And, um, it was fascinating to learn that, how all that stuff worked and to, and to see, yeah, that was another very useful tool was just to see the bytecode that was generated for particular Ruby scripts or, or method calls, whatever. If I were going to pause this podcast and go play with Ruby assembly, disassembly right now, what class and method would I be looking for? Um, so it's called the, I think it's a Ruby VM. Yeah. Instruction sequence. Yeah. So exactly. So there's a, a disassemble or DIS ASM method on that class, which is Ruby VM instruction set. We can leave a link to that in the show cool. notes, maybe. Yeah. It's very easy to use. You just, Take a string which contains some Ruby code, pass it into that disassemble method, and it just prints out all the um, all the internal YARV bytecode instructions. And that goes that can help go a long way towards just understanding yeah how things are working um, under the hood. Aaron, do you have anything to add about poking around in Ruby's internals? So I like to read the vmcore.c file. That's awesome. Actually, what you should look at. My favorite file is, let me get you exactly the name here, insns.def. If you go check out the Ruby source. 
get that file, look at that file, because it's a file that contains all of Ruby's instruction sequences and descriptions of what those instruction sequences are. So when you go and disassemble some some method or whatever, like if you go dump the instruction sequences for some method, you won't necessarily know what they mean. But if you go look at this file, every one of the instructions is listed in there with documentation about what it does. So you can look at that code and then read this definition file and understand what it's doing. Yeah, I remember that was tricky to figure out in the beginning when I was getting started because it's not a .c file. Um, no. And I was, like, grepping and searching for, you know, well, where is this instruction to find? You know, like the send instruction or or whatever, the get local instruction. Like, where, no, where do I find this? And eventually I found it in this .def file. So that's a great tip. Yeah, the .def file is actually, it's actually parsed and turned into a C file. Yeah. So. Yeah, and Pat talks about that in chapter three. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was pre- that was pretty interesting. You know, using basically metaprogramming to create the instructions. So there, there's actually a method like this is not covered in the book. There's a function that lets you load instruction sequences, but it's not exposed to the public. If you do a little bit of fiddle code, I can probably give you a snippet, but it's possible to expose this function and allow you to actually load bytecode. So. Theoretically, you could get the bytecode for a method, manipulate the bytecode, and then load that back up. Wow. That's kind of scary. <laughs> yeah, it's possible. That's cool. Yeah, and one of, one of the cool things about Rubinius is that it actually allows you, as a standard feature, to output the bytecode. So you have a real compiler, right? So you have a Ruby compiler, and it can save out um, bytecode that you can then later read in and run. So I don't think MRI does that, right? You can't, um, without, you can use these tricks to look at them. You can't save the bytecode in a separate file and, and then run it later, like as if it were Java. Right. I, I thought your treatment of Rubinius was one of the best arguments I've seen for why Rubinius is valuable. You know, that we can, for so much of the stack, we can just go and read in simple Ruby code what this particular method does, you know, and, and that really turned out to be interesting. You had some really good examples of that. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, and I wish I had more time to, to write more and learn more about Rubinius and JRuby and you know other versions of Ruby, but it was just I did want to touch on those and, and and show people that, you know, there are other ways of doing things and other versions of Ruby and sort of, you know, be able to compare and contrast them. Um but I only had enough space and time to handle just to to scratch the surface of Rubinius and JRuby, but it was it was a lot of fun. Speaking of Rubinius, I know that the one of the challenges of working on alternate VMs, you know, J, you know JRuby, Rubinius, yeah, has to do with the fact that MRI was developed without a formal specification, and it just sort of grew up organically. And the implementation was the specification for the language. Oh, if it, you know, if it runs, it runs, right? This is Ruby. So uh, there's some stuff that you covered in the book that looked like the kind of stuff that would drive me a little crazy trying to implement or to understand why it was that way. And if it uh-huh. really mattered, you know, like in chapter six, when you were talking about modules and yep. share and sharing and how all that stuff works. And it was like, well, okay. When you include a module, you know, it shares the method table, but it doesn't share everything. So there's changes <laughs> that you can make to the module right. that, you know, after it's been included, that will like instantly show up in all the classes that have already included that module. But there's other changes you can make that will not show up. <laughs> right. And, yeah. 
And I asked that question on stage once, by the way. Like, oh. what happens if you include a module again in the class hierarchy? I'm like, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, I don't think these are... I mean, for me, it's not like I'm recommending that you do these things or that this is an important feature of the language even. For me, it's important in sort of a scientific way. Like, right. it's it's a way of researching or getting to the question of or answering the question, how does Ruby work? Like, how do modules work? What happens when you include them? And doing these wacky things, the same thing with the hash, right? Breaking the hash uh, using a, a poor hash function, it's not something I, I'm telling you that you should do. It's sort of an experimental trick. It's a way, a, a, as a scientist, for me to, you know, quote-unquote scientist, as a way for me to figure out what's really going on on the inside and demonstrate, prove that the theory is correct. You know, oh, oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm not knocking your approach in the book at all. It's the, but I look at these things and I'm wondering, okay, is it that way by accident or is it that way intentionally? Oh, good question. Yeah. Um, and, 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 you know, you didn't build the Ruby language, so you're not the person who can answer that question. But I love that the book shows all of these things where I now know, oh, hey, this is a thing that I would love to ask Matt the next time he sits down next to me on a plane. Right. So. <laughs> because that has happened. Yes. Yeah. yeah, I was so lucky to meet Matt and I gave him a copy of the book, but I didn't think of asking these tough questions. I was just like, thanks for creating Ruby. You know, it was super, super fun to write the book. I signed a copy for him, but I didn't, I should have asked him, you know, why do you not share the method table when you include a module? <laughs> if only I'd append him to the wall there. Dang right. it. <laughs> and I, I suspect a lot of that stuff is just, yeah, the, what you said, it just grew organically and it just is the way it is. Or, you know, maybe there are subtle reasons for some of these design decisions. I think it's amazing you talk about, you know, understanding how all this works. A lot of times, you know, we see people talk about how Ruby leaks memory. And whenever they do that, I just want them now, I'm just going to want them to read your chapter on blocks and closures. Because that's it. Whenever I look into the code... Nine times out of ten, it's they're keeping a bunch of closure references around, you know, and right. you can see how that works. It copies all this memory into the heap, and it has to live for the length of that thing, you know, and that's, yep. that's your leak, you know. That part of the book was the most fun for me, chapter eight, and the part about how blocks and closures work, and you know, I, I think it's one of the most beautiful features of the Ruby language, how you can, in this elegant way, pass in a function or a lambda to another one. And then when I was learning how Ruby worked, that was the most fun and interesting part of it. You know, learning how blocks are handled internally, how they're passed around. And then, yeah, how when you create a closure, how they're copied out into the heap. That was like a big moment was like, oh, I'm getting this. I can see how Ruby works here. You like when you create a closure, it's put into the heap and it sort of stays there forever as long as you're using it. Um, so that was one of the big aha moments for me when I was, was when I figured out how closures worked. And yeah. I think that's important for Ruby developers to sort of, to, to know that. That explanation I thought was extremely valuable in particular for the comparison uh, or, or the discussion of the optimization that has gone into blocks so that, that, you know, w when you, when you pass a proc into a method, it has to create the extra context. But if you call it with a block, then it can share the context of the method. Right, right, right. And it was also one of the most difficult things to figure out was how blocks work and, you know, how the pointers to the block 
structure or handles. But yeah, blocks and procs are really the same thing. And a proc is a sort of an, a wrapper around the block, so it can be handled like a Ruby object. Yeah. But yeah, it's all it's all very confusing. But I I hope I tried I tried to explain that stuff in a way that made sense. It was good because it um it, it helped you understand sometimes why there might be multiple syntaxes for something. Like you have block given and yield, or you can, you know, give the extra parameter with the ampersand in front of it and get the actual proc object. And uh, there's even been talk in the past, like, why do we need both of these? Didn't we just have right. one way to call a block? But it's like Josh said, well, when you only use yield, then Ruby kind of knows that it's only going to happen in that method and it can take a few shortcuts, you know, whereas if you pull right. it up into an object, who knows where you're going to send that object and now it's got to start copying some memory, you know. Yeah, and, and I think blocks are definitely a special case inside of the Ruby C code, but I think that was a great decision and it's one of the things that sets the language apart. For example, this is probably get, it's going to get me in trouble to say this, but... Ruby and Python are very, very, very similar. They're almost like the same language. But when I compare the two, I think the fact that you can use blocks the way that you do in Ruby is one of the things that, that I love about Ruby that I find missing in Python. Um, but I'm not a Python developer, so I'm, I'm sure I'm going to get hate mail from those folks about why Python is actually better than Ruby. But that was one. So my point is only that blocks are one of the most elegant features of the language. And so it was really neat to see how they work internally and how they're handled. And um, I, I think for me, that was the most fun part of the book to write. I'm just amazed they were able to finish the language with um, such an important blocking feature. Oh, no, Josh, no. I thought, I thought Aaron was supposed to give us the puns. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I haven't had my coffee today. I can't do it. Aaron, Sorry. Aaron gives us great emoji. Instead. Too many, too many blockers. <laughs> oh, there we go. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, we've been talking for about an hour. What else do we need to cover before we move on? I have one. No, I loved the garbage collection chapter. I thought when you took on garbage collection, I thought, wow, this is kind of a big topic, and I was a little worried. You know, it, it's um. She did a great job. Like, you really went pretty deep into it. You know, simple market sweep. How does that work? And then, okay, so that's not ideal. What can we go one step more? And, and just showed how Ruby's algorithm has evolved, you know, over time. And yeah. I, I talked about how some other parts of the book were, you know, hadn't caught up with some of the most recent advances, but actually this part had. You mentioned the changes in 2.1 and, and, uh, all that, so it's just like it was really cool. You took on this really hardcore concept in, in a super accessible way. It was great. Well, well, thanks a lot. And that was not easy. And a lot of that, I have to thank my editor Bill Pollock from No Starch. So he's not a he's not a developer or a Rubyist. He didn't help me with garbage collection, but he helped me pull that together into something that was understandable. And I, you know, it was a challenge. I was trying to finish this book in a reasonable amount of time last year, and it was just kind of dragging on and on. I couldn't, but I really wanted to get to garbage collection. I just felt it was important enough, and I couldn't leave it out. And I also thought it would be a good way to end the book. It's sort of a, you know, it's like the the death of a Ruby object. How do things uh, you get cleaned up and and reused again? Um, but it was tough. 
pulling that into a format that made sense, and that's where Bill Pollock really helped me out. So, so thanks a lot to all the folks at No Starch for helping me uh, improve this. So I did a version of Ruby under a microscope in 2012 that was just on my own, uh, and you know the version I did last year I think came out to be a lot better with some professional help. That could be a whole other podcast for you guys. You know, sub- self-publishing versus traditional publishing. I'm sure, as Bobby has a lot to say on that topic, but. You know, all I want to say is I got the best of both worlds. I was able to write my own ebook one year and then the next year do it with professionals. And anyway, back to garbage collection. Yeah, that was a tough topic. And he helped me really just sort of scope it, shape it in a way that was, um, that made sense. Yeah. Pat, I, I got a question about some of the terminology in that chapter. So you talked about like young objects and mature objects and uh-huh. the Eden. You, know, you talked about Eden as the place where objects were born. When all this stuff, like generational garbage collection, when that was being developed, uh, I guess in the 80s, um, 90s, I guess it was the 80s, the, um, we called those it was, things... It was actually earlier. It was like 60s and 70s, probably. Uh, well, the so probably in research, I, I, I think the... I, I remember it was like becoming available in commercial th- uh, implementations in the 80s. Right, right. Um, and, you know, I would go to the OOPSLA conferences and people would be doing papers on, on generational garbage collection. But they would talk about the place where objects were born was called the nursery. And then they would move through several generations. And then they would, you know, when they got to the point where you uh, stopped doing the copying and you started doing the mark sweep, you know, the mature objects, they called that tenure. Right. So, right. so you can tell this stuff that, like, came from academics. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Oh, that's maybe a good thing to point out there. Um, it seemed like, uh, Pat, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but it seemed like, for the most part, Pat tried to use the terminology that you would see if you were digging inside of the Ruby source. Yes, exactly. Yes, that that's a great point. I should have said that earlier. Yeah, there were a lot of times, not just with garbage collection, but in many other parts of the book where I didn't really know. Another great so another example is: is it a meta class, a singleton class, an eigen class? You know, there's this whole other not a debate, but you know, different people use different words for that. Um, and I tried, you know, I tried not to sort of impose any opinion on that. I just, I try to use the words that Matt's and the core team used in the code. Um, you know, so same thing with garbage collection. Although a lot of that stuff in that chapter is not about MRI, it's about Rubinius and JRuby. Right. But I would just use the words that I would see in the code. Exactly. Okay. So, so yeah, so that makes total sense then. And I, and I had that, I had that impression as well. So, and, and again, Aaron, you got some great suggestions on garbage collection for, you know, I think you helped me add a whole nother piece to one of the experiments. And so you had some great um, contributions there. Thanks a lot for that. Yeah, of course. No problem. It's my pleasure. Who about the forward? I mean, can we get somebody good for the forward? <laughs> Just that, was, that was really awesome, Aaron. Thanks again. I, I don't know. How to- no, 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 no problem. No problem. I was happy to do it. Yeah, it's a pro, pro tip. If you're going to write a book about Ruby, get Aaron Patterson to review it and write it forward for you. All right. Let's do some picks. Josh, you wanted to go first. <laughs> yes. Yeah, just time and all that. Okay, so uh, I'm being lazy about picks right now. <laughs> uh, so uh, probably all heard of these by now, but just for the record, xkcd.com slash now is like the best world clock I've ever seen. So go check that out. It is awesome. And then, you know, the new thing, Adam.io, the Adam editor 
from GitHub. I've been playing, I've played with it for a whole hour now and it looks pretty cool. I think it has a lot of potential. It's basically people have compared it to sublime text in its functionality and sort of feel, but it's built uh, mainly in CoffeeScript and it uses CSS for all the styling and theming. So it's meant to be extremely hackable. And the thing that I've noticed in that hour or so of playing around with it is that it seems like the kind of thing that I would build. It's like the people who build it think a lot like I do. So there haven't been much surprises. It's been really, everything's made a lot of sense to me. So I'm looking forward to playing around with that more. And that's it for me. Avdi, do you have some picks? Well, I've got one. So you know how Google has this thing where they, they come up with really neat technology and then they just completely fail to market it well? <laughs> <laughs> so um, for a long time, they've had a feature where if you've got an Android phone, I don't know if you can do this on an, on an iPhone, maybe you can, but if you've got an Android phone and if you've got uh, Google+, Plus, uh, you can have the phone sync, automatically sync your photos straight up to the Google+, Plus private photo gallery. And this is not terribly unusual. I think a bunch, I think Facebook has copied them since then. So you can have your stuff synced to Facebook immediately. And it's a nice little backup, uh, in case you dump your, your phone in the lake. And, uh, it's, it's also convenient because like once you go to your computer and you want to like post some, some photos from your trip or something, the photos are just like right there in the cloud. So it does that. It's very nice. Um, but that's not super unusual. They've also been incorporating some really nice photo editing capabilities into it, uh, into the online web app. And that's, that's cool too. But again, not super unusual, but worth checking out. What's really interesting is that like is several months ago, they rolled out something that they call auto awesome, which is like the worst name ever because it's meaningless. <laughs> but like at a base level, what it means is whenever my stuff gets synced to Google plus photos, it saves the original copy of the photos, but then it also runs some automatic enhancement on them. So stuff like if a picture is washed out, it'll punch up the, the color a bit. If a picture has some blurriness, it'll sharpen it a little bit. Particularly if, if there's a, an area that's, that just got, was so bright that it just completely washed out, or if the, uh, there is an area that's, is super deep in shadow, uh, it'll just, it'll touch up just those areas to like bring out the detail that you couldn't see before. A lot of little tweaks that are just like barely noticeable, but unless you flip flop between the original and the enhanced version, but it, it works really well. Like I don't, I can't think of an instance yet where I've preferred the original to the enhanced version. It's all very subtle. And just it's a bajillion times nicer than having to than going in manually and fiddling with, you know, fiddling with stuff in the photo editor to to try to punch up a, a photo a little bit. So it's really really nice, and that just happens automatically. And and I've I've got, it's gotten to the point where I just wait until a photo gets synced up and gets auto awesome before I post it anywhere because I know that version will be nicer. But then they've they've gone like a step beyond that too, where they'll take some of your photos and just do random awesome stuff to them. And it's not destructive. I mean, you've still got the originals, but like it'll take, if you've got a, if you take a sequence of photos and fast, you know, right after each other of something that's, that's in motion, it'll make it, it'll just automatically make a gift for you, you know, of the, of the action happening. Or, uh, sometimes it does little collages. Lately it has taken to like noting that like a, a series of photos was from a particular outing or something. And just like putting the photos and videos all together with some musical backdrop and making it like a, a little 30 second video of that outing. And it just like pops those into your collection. Like they weren't there before. And then they just appear there. It's like, Hey, you've got some new stuff here. And, and often, often it's actually like they say, kind of awesome. So yeah, it's like the coolest thing online that nobody's talking about. Uh, and, and it's, it's totally worth playing, playing around with Google plus just for their photo stuff. And that was really long. So I'll just end it at that. 
the auto awesome feature was clearly programmed by passionate ninja rock stars, I think. <laughs> naming. You can tell by the naming. I also feel compelled to point out that Opti just said GIF, and last week I said GIF, uh, which I've been taking flack for. Do we have to fight now? I know, right? Like, I, just to be clear, though, I prefer the way Avdi said it. I only said it the other way because I thought that had been definitively proven correct. So. <laughs> well, if you're a freedom fighter, you know, CompuServe defined the word and said it was pronounced GIF, and then they were jerks and, like, exerted IP control and tried to break the internet. So I'm all for pronouncing it GIF. Yeah, so stick it to the man. So now yeah. we get to change it. All right, there you go. There's the Ruby Rogues take. We are saying GIF in order to fight the power. That's it. GIF. Right there. GIF. 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 Yeah, geez, yeah, I blow it. <laughs> okay, Aaron, save me from this conversation. Your picks, please. Yeah, I've got a lot of picks. I usually post them to my Instagram and also Twitter, so check them out there. <laughs> That's usually my cat. <laughs> <laughs> Um, man, I don't know. Let's see. What's on my desk? Uh, I have a Ruby Under the Microscope book. That is my pick for the week. We should do that as a book club sometime. (laughs) No, um, man, I don't know. I guess I choose sparkfun.com because I'm spending a lot of money there lately for some reason. Go to sparkfun.com. You can make robots and stuff which is what I am doing. That's amazing. (laughs) Well, I'm working... Okay, I'll tell you what I'm doing. I am extremely jealous. Okay, I'm working on a system to identify my magic cards, and I'm extremely jealous of my friend's robotic system made out of Legos, but I don't want to spend the money on Legos, so now I'm trying to build a robot without them. (laughs) So that is what I'm doing. So many emotions wrapped up in that envy and yes, <laughs> joy, envy, yeah. trial, tears. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> all right, is that, is that all your picks? That's all my picks. Okay, I've got a few. First, I've been doing a lot of work in with hypermedia lately, which basically means that I've made all the mistakes you can make when implementing your own hypermedia API now, and so I appreciate them. So there's this thing I've seen on GitHub called DocJSON, which is another hypermedia format, uh, kind of like CollectionJSON or HAL, but it talks about some of the flaws with those and why they're trying to build a new format and stuff. Uh, so that's of interest to me. If you work with hypermedia formats, it might be of interest to you too. Then I saw a good blog post from MV Labs about not every object being an active record object, not every model being an active record model. And I, I think that's one of the killer things like I have known for a long time and I see people struggle with still once they get in the Rails mindset and they have that app models folder, they think that everything in there has to be active record and it's incredibly powerful to just remember that you can be able to insert a class that's, you know, just a, a normal class. And um, this blog post talks about that. And then the third thing, just for amazing fun, I was talking with a co-worker, Jared Ning, the other day, who's house hunting, and we got to talking about building our own houses. And he dropped this link on me of 33 amazing ideas for basically inside your house. 
Uh, and they are absolutely amazing. They made me want to build my own house right now using all 33 of these ideas uh, and a billion more. Uh, it's super cool. you got to go check it out. Those are my picks. Pat, what do you have for us? Real quick, um, before I get to the picks, I just wanted a couple shout-outs. Just thank uh, Peter Cooper for all his support, and uh, he's just uh, encouraged me for uh, so long and helped me have enough confidence to write this book. And also Xavier Noria from Barcelona was my technical reviewer in 2012 when I self-published it. And so thanks so much for your help. And, of course, Aaron, thanks for all the work you did last year. So I have, for my picks, I have uh, an article. Actually, I wanted to pick one of my own articles, which sounds really egotistical and selfish. But um, I was, and I know you guys are going to do an episode on Jim, but I was really saddened by um, Jim Weirich's passing. And I was just uh, looking back happy that I had a chance to interview him. So um, I wanted to put in a link to an interview I did with Jim Weirich back in 2012. Um, and it was really, you know, I read it again today and it was a fun conversation. We talked about, um, you know, the job description of a computer programmer. That was interesting. And um, I also, I called him a technical storyteller, which I think um, uh, is a great way of describing Jim, at least one one side of his personality. And um, and actually in that in that interview, we, we talked about an article by Michael Feathers. I'll give you that link in a moment um, as well. It's called 10 Papers Every Programmer Should Read or something like that. Um, and it's a really um, fascinating list of articles, academic articles from a long time ago. Um, and, you know, back to the point with my book, which is I wanted to encourage Ruby developers to learn something about computer science and learn about how Ruby works. Um, so this is a great way of uh, you know, Michael Feathers has a great list of uh, old academic articles that you can go read that are really fascinating. Um, so I'll give you that link. Uh, and then on the same topic, uh, a friend of mine, Mike Bernstein from New York, who works at Code Climate, is uh, also famous for reading academic articles, and um, he tweets them quite often. So follow him on Twitter, um, MRB underscore BK. And um, he also did a fascinating presentation called Distributed Systems Archaeology or something like that. So Check that out where he goes through, uh, you know, the history of academic research and talks about um, a lot of amazing um, academic papers that, again, you can read. So I'll give you guys these links. A lot of uh, great things you can go read up on about computer science. But, uh, yeah, that's it. Thanks. And thanks, guys, for having me on today. Really, had a, it was a blast. A lot of fun. Awesome. Thank you very much for writing the book and then coming to talk to us. Our next book club book, we are going to do Object Design by Rebecca Wurfsbrock and Ellen McKean. Uh, so we're going to get in touch with them and see when we can get them on the show. Uh, but the full title is Object Design, Roles, Responsibilities, and Collaboration. Uh, so it sounds awesome. Uh, we- I think we've been told it was one of the inspirations for Pooter, so, uh, which we all loved. So uh, that's the book we're working on next. Uh, go ahead and grab a copy and read along with us. And I think that's it. Thank you, everybody, and we will see you next time. <laughs>